Peter chapter 1, where we will pick up where we left off, verse by verse, through the New Testament. We find ourselves this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be starting at verse 13. You can put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, we wish uh, that the Holy Spirit, we pray that he would quiet our hearts with your love. Help us to focus on spiritual matters. We know that this book in front of us is God-breathed and has truth that will set our hearts free. We ask now, Heavenly Father, for the help to get the most out of this message, to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to each person that you brought here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Billy Graham... He's one of the most famous and effective Christian evangelists in modern history, of course. He's had personal audience with every U.S. president since 1945, Harry S. Truman. More importantly, Billy has preached the gospel um, in person to more people than any other person has in history. According to his staff, more than 3.2 million people have responded to the invitation at Billy Graham Crusades to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, uh, many to the altar call song of Just As I Am. Uh, Crazy thing. He's had a lifetime audience of radio and television that tops 2.2 billion with a B. Now, imagine the paradox of being Billy's son and living like a godless unbeliever. It's kind of what happened, if you know Franklin's uh, testimony there in the late 60s and the early 70s. He was slow to believe. He didn't believe until 1974 when he was 22 years old. In his testimony, and I found quite amusing one part of it, uh, he would be carousing with his buddies, getting into trouble. He even got expelled from college for inappropriate behavior. Now, he said that he had a hard time making friends with sinners or the crowds that he was traveling with. He'd be hanging out in some bar, drinking and getting into trouble, shooting pool, carousing. And he'd meet somebody, and they'd become friends, partying buddies. And then he'd introduce himself as Franklin Graham. And then somebody would say, no relation to Billy, huh? (laughs) And then he would have to say, actually, he's my father. And then the question that the Holy Spirit used in one of these guys' mouth was, what is Billy Graham's son doing In a place like this, the apple's not supposed to fall very far from the tree. And really, it's kind of like Einstein's kid being in a remedial math class. (laughs) (laughs) Or Beethoven's kid just can't carry a tune or, you know. But it's precisely what the Apostle Peter's getting at here in the first chapter of his letter or epistle. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. 
Peter has just opened an incredible uh, letter to these believers, encouraging them about their incredible salvation and their wonderful relationship to God as his dearly loved children. He said, as you recall, in verses 1 through 12, you've been chosen by God the Father to be his child, adopted into his family. You've got this living hope. He, by his spirit, is present with you always now because you're his. You have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. You have this inexpressible joy, independent of whatever you're going through. You have this unbelievable honor to be born after the cross of Christ, when the Holy Spirit has been given, to live at the end of the age, or what is called the consummation of the ages. What an honor, he says. And now he's going to say, in view of the majestic description of all God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you must now live it. You must live like it. You must be who you are in Christ. And now, before he exhorts the Christians to any kind of behavior, first he's going to celebrate all that God has done for us and in us and through us. Now we're ready to be encouraged to start to be uh, active in our faith. And so picking up at verse 13. Therefore, and you know they teach you at Bible college, I'm just going to save you thousands of dollars right here. (laughs) When you see a therefore, you always ask yourself why it's therefore. There you go. I throw that in for free. Oh, it's there because of verses 1 through 12 that just said everything I just listed to you. Now, in light of this crazy, marvelous, wonderful, supernatural thing called salvation, that has been put in your heart, that you, knowing who you used to be, now reunited to God, and you could call him Papa God. Having God of the universe, your Father, in light of that, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given You, when Jesus Christ is revealed as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For, now he's quoting from Isaiah, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. A couple more verses, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we'll pause there this morning. This will be the text for our consideration. Uh, The truth is not something just to know, but God's truth Once we grab hold of it and embrace it, it needs to be evidenced by a life change. And so it's ridiculous to have all of this knowledge about all the beautiful things God is and has done for you and then live in an unbelieving way as if none of that mattered in your daily life. So this great salvation, it really demands that the apple not fall very far from the tree. We call him Father. You know, not only do we speak for God when we share our faith, but we must speak like God speaks. We can't just say we know the way to be saved, but we have to live that out. And so many times, the most important and the most influent, the most influential of all of our um, sharing of the gospel comes from the way we're living and the life change in our attitude and how we respond in an opposite spirit and how God is changing us from who we used to be to who we're becoming. So he's saying in light of all God's done for you and in, in you, here are three, three things to think about as we consider these words. Number one, Imitate the Father. Number two, respect the Father. And number three, love his kids. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Number one, imitate the Father. So Peter's already told you, look, you didn't find religion. You didn't decide, oh, I've got to start being a good person now because you can't be a good person. Jesus died for you. You, uh, because you can't be good enough. And when you believe in God, his Holy Spirit will come into you and give you new life, and that's the definition of what it means to be saved. Good people don't go to heaven, and bad people don't go to hell. It doesn't work that way. It's not biblical. Saved people go to heaven. Unsaved people go to hell. That is the biblical way to understand it. It says that this new life has come into you, Therefore, you will have a change in your behavior because of the new life and the new relationship. Now you are related to God. And if you're going to say, I'm God's kid, then something about you has to resemble. So he's saying, okay, there's this new plant that gets planted in you, the seed of God. This new life is going to start growing in you. Now, how do you shape it? How do you cooperate? You can't give yourself the life 
It's an inheritance. It's a free gift upon anybody who believes in Christ. You get a free gift of this new life. You're born again. Here's the rub. Now you have to cooperate with his spirit. As Paul said to the Philippians, you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You can't earn your way to heaven, but it's a stewardship. It's a gift. But you are responsible for managing what God has given you in the new life. And so he says, imitate God. And this is what we're talking about. Verse 13 says, therefore, because God's new life is growing in you, prepare yourself for action. So verse 13 is really a call to prepare yourself for the world that you live in and all the contrary forces that will kind of hinder this new life that started to grow in your heart and life. Now, uh, it literally, the King James has it the best. Wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind. Well, it may be the best, but nobody understands what that means. <laughs> now, because in the Greek... It is a Hebrew, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew idiom that girding up the loins meant when they were called to do some work or some labor, they were dressed in robes, and in order to prepare for the intentional hard work or to move with more agility, they would gird up, they would pull up the robe and tuck it into their waist. That's the loins, gird up. The loins. And so that was a real common thing. You'll remember uh, in Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover, the Jews were told, you eat this Passover, this is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked up into your belt, your sandals on, your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, because it's the Lord's Passover. What was the Lord saying? He's saying, look, when God starts to work in your life, strike! While the fire is hot, strike now immediately. When God starts to do something in your life, you don't say, oh, maybe next Sunday. When there's a stir, when the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to you, your conscience is talking to you, God is doing a work to try to save you. This isn't something that you put off, not even five minutes. That's why he's saying, gird yourself Get ready, staff in hand, sandals on your feet, because the things of God, your great salvation, is a very serious matter. So he says, number one, uh, really a good translation of this, roll up the shirt sleeves of your mind. Prepare yourself for what's coming so that you'll be ready. It's serious business, no delay, not even a second. What a great balance in this verse I found here. Colossians 1.29 says, Paul says, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. What a great balance. God's power, our wrestling together, produces God's work in our hearts and lives. You know, some people just think I just raised my hand or I came to the altar call and God does everything and that's it. That's not the way it works. Listen to Paul. He says, I really labor struggling with all his energy that works so powerfully in me. 
You see, I really think that our struggle isn't to do the work. Our struggle is to let him do the work. And that is a lot of work. And so this is what he's saying. Are you ready? Are you in that mode? Are you prepared? Are you thinking? Are you focused? On your mark, get set, go. It's a serious heaven and hell. Reward, eternal reward or loss of reward. Angels are watching you, he just told us. Longing and looking and marveling at this whole thing unfolding. He says, are you taking this serious? Prepare yourself. He says for action. They called the Lord the devil. What are they going to think of you? Prepare yourself. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Prepare yourself. Your own body will fight against you. You'll do the thing you hate, and you won't do the thing you love. Prepare yourself. Your own family won't get you, and because of Jesus, you will be divided. A father from a son, a mother from a daughter, a brother from a sister. Why? Because you stand for Jesus. Prepare yourself. They'll teach your children that they came from apes, that creation is one big coincidence, that they can pick a God that's right for them, that boys can marry boys and girls can marry girls. Prepare yourself. They'll ban the name of Jesus and God, Christmas, and prayer, and remove all vestiges of truth, the Ten Commandments and crosses. Prepare yourself. A baby's seal will have more rights and will be safer swimming in the Arctic seas than a human baby in her mother's womb. Prepare yourself. Depending where and when you live, because of Jesus, they'll take your house, they'll take your job, they'll take your freedom, and they'll take your life. Prepare yourself. 150,000 Christians will die this year because of their faith, according to the voice of martyrs. Of course you never hear about that. 150,000 of us gone because they said you know what Muhammad is not the way that's a lie they said well we'll kill you and they said you can't kill me you can only kill my body therefore go for it prepare yourself are you ready your mind focused are you playing a whole lot of video games all day long Are you on Facebook all day long? Or are you just kind of wandering around? Prepare yourself, the Lord says. Well, how does one gird up the loins of one's mind? A question you were all asking. And so I gladly answer it. (laughs) There are two essentials. Paraphrase. This is how you do it. Controlling yourself and keeping your eye on the prize. So priority number one. He's saying, in essence, get a grip on yourself. 
Self-control is everything. Proverbs says, chapter 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. If you don't have self-control, it's just a matter of time. You will be destroyed. Your whole life will come unraveled. Self-control is the kingpin that holds everything else together. And so he says, number one, prepare yourself with action for action and get a grip. The Greek word is nepho, and it means really to be sober. King James has it sober. Literally, it would mean not to be drunk. But figuratively, the way it's meant here, it includes not getting drunk because when you're under the pressure that these folks were under, you might want to get drunk. That's not what it's talking about. He's talking about a serious, sober-mindedness, a self-control. 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul says to Timothy, he's really in a, a bit of a predicament. He says, but you keep your head in all situations. It really means really to be, uh, here, I'm reading from the Greek-English lexicon about this word. Although the verb can mean sobriety as opposed to being drunk, in this sense, it's a sober-minded thinking, as I said, a restraint and moderation which avoids overreactions, rashness, excess in passion, pleasure, or confusion. Now, he knows what's facing these Christians and what faces all Christians to some degree, struggling with our own hearts, in our own families, at our own jobs, in the world, spiritual warfare. And he says, keep your focus. Don't be intoxicated. Last night, I was coming home, and right at where Fulton turns into Wright Road, three police cars and a poor young man in jeans and a t-shirt, going like this. And then he was trying to walk, and he wasn't doing a good job. Why? When you're intoxicated, your whole world is off kilter. You're unbalanced. You're unsteady. One push, boom, you're done. The Bible says, spiritually speaking, do not be intoxicated with relationships or making money or friendships or how do I look or my body and all of these things that make us drunk, spiritually speaking. Now's not the time to get all distracted and confused and having your head spinning. He says, no, no, no. Are you clear-headed and seriously focused or are you intoxicated with all of these things? I wonder... If we were to give a spiritual sobriety test right now, honestly, there are tests like that. Did you come here prepared? Did you pray? Did you really worship or were you just still and bowed your head and thought about other stuff? Do you read the text to make sure that I'm telling you the right thing? I mean, I'm not a note taker, so, but I mean, I think it's a good thing to take notes. I, are you living it? Or are you a little woozy? He says, you live in a day where you can't afford to be a little woozy. The second word he uses is perspective, really. 
Let everything you say and do be influenced by what you know is coming for you, this grace of God, Jesus face to face. And so the Bible in the New Testament is always telling you live with a focus on the end. Keep the prize in mind. That one day you will stand before God and give an account of your life. Even the Bible says that that's what's going to happen. And so you're going to see Jesus one day who made you. He's going to graciously raise you from the dead, graciously transform your body, graciously wipe away every tear, graciously give you a place he's prepared for you. He's going to graciously open the gates of eternal life for you. He's going to graciously put all sins behind uh, his back and graciously reward you for your faithfulness and graciously put all your enemies under your feet. He's going to graciously give you a position of honor and crowns of reward. And so he says, come on, live with that in view. Make your decisions in light of how do I want to remember this when I'm face to face with the Lord? Because if you do in that moment... And you truly understand this is something we are going to talk about, me and the Lord, face to face, about this conversation right now. And this little problem, this little dilemma, he will bring this matter up on a Tuesday, a Saturday, or whatever it is. He will evaluate it, live in light of that in the moment, and everything, he will change everything. I used to do this thing um, at Heald College when I was a general ed teacher. And I used to go over a unit of grammar and punctuation. And then we'd have a test or an essay. And I would call the student up to my desk and we'd go over together the essay after having spent a few weeks on the unit. And so let's say we were talking about apostrophes. Single possessives and and double plural possessives and all of that. Stuff you loved. (laughs) Remember that? You long for those days in grammar. Adverbs, nouns, and all of that. No, I know. I've turned you all off. You all want to leave. I know. And so we would talk about that, and I'd drill them, and we'd have exercises. And then, write the essay, show me you learned this thing, and then come and sit at my desk, and with my red pen, we're going to read it. And I'd say, read out loud. And they would read it out loud. And I'd go through. And I'd say, now, (laughs) you saw an S, and did you just panic and put an apostrophe? Because I don't see a noun that comes after that. You don't need a possessive noun. Yeah, it's just plural. You see boys, and boom. Why did you do that? Were you out that day? Were you not listening? Oh, we have to have this face-to-face. Because this is stuff I talk to you about. And my students would say to me, I pay attention better. I take notes now because I know the day is coming when I'm going to have to sit and talk to you about this. (laughs) So it kind of makes it a little awkward, but I have to tell you, Mr. Ryman, it works. Paul, Peter, in this case, and Paul, in other places, is saying, could you just know that the, uh, having God as your father does not excuse you from the final exam? You are going to have a final exam. And so he says, as obedient children. 
Now you can't be giving in to your old evil desires that you had when you were clueless about Jesus. Now the Lord is calling you out. You have to be like me now, says the Lord. And so with that in mind, we need to be who we are. We need to know, live with the perspective that we're going to be evaluated by the Lord for the things that we do. Um, and this word now, he says, so you've got to be holy. And that word just doesn't make any sense in the English. It's from the Greek hagios, and all it means is to be separated out. He says, I'm different from the sinful world, so you need to be different from this sinful world. And really, it has the idea of moral purity and perfection. He says, I'm not like that. You're my child, and this is the reason. Now, do you remember in John 8 when Jesus got into a knockdown, drag down, knock out, drag down, fight? He got into a big argument <laughs> with the Pharisees. And he says, oh, wait a second now. I see a family resemblance, Jesus speaking. He says, you know what? You're just like your father. Because he was a liar from the beginning, and I see that you're a chip off the whole block. I see that the apple did not fall very far from the tree because he's a liar, you're a liar. He's a murderer, and you want to murder me. Huh. It's very clear now. Just the opposite is true for us. He's saying, your old, wicked, oppressive, alcoholic stepfather is out of the picture. Now you've got me, the father of all spirits, good and benevolent, kind and merciful, loving beyond belief. Now, because I am different. I am kind, I am loving, and you're my kid, and I'm in you, and you're in me. you got to look like me. you got to act like me. No child of mine should be doing what the devil does. And so he's saying the reason that we obey his commands is not so much because it's the right thing to do. It's because of who we are, because he planted his own seed in us. This life came from above. You're born from above. This is God's life. And so that life ought to be expressing itself in holiness in all that means it's different. And so somebody will say, you know, why can't I cheat on a test? Because God wouldn't. Why can't I lie to my boss? Because God is honest and true. Why can't I sleep with my girlfriend? Because God wants us to be morally pure. He's designed sex for marriage. You see, when people are asking those questions, that the verbs are right there in your text. He says, number one, your former life is over. Proteros in the Greek. You had B.C. before Christ's day. Done. You don't live that way anymore. Baptism says, I died. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, don't you realize you have died? If you are alive and well and sin in your life out, <laughs> something's wrong. The Bible says the new life kills off the old life. So your former way is done. 
He says, when you lived in ignorance, the word is agnoia. It means you didn't know any better. But he says, now you know. You used to live this other life because of your ignorance. You didn't get it. But now you know when your lusts, it says, epithumia, when your lusts controlled you. But now the Holy Spirit controls you, resulting in this empty, useless life. The word for empty there is barren, wasted, useless. And so he says, we need to be like him now. I love Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in the J.B. Phillips translation says, Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. He says, don't conform anymore to the way you used to do things. The way your sinful friends, your unbelieving family does life. Stop caving in. Now you conform to what? Your destiny. Your destiny, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, 9 says, you have been predestined, programmed by God to become the image of Jesus Christ. And all that means is that God programmed the spirit of life that he put in you as a born-again Christian to take over the whole operation and make you just like Jesus. The way Jesus loved, the way Jesus was patient, the way Jesus was compassionate with the needy, the way he just spoke to please his father and didn't have his own agenda. He said, I only do what I... (laughs) I hear the Father telling me what to do. That's all I ever do, to please him. He says, that's the spirit that he put in every one of us that you need to stop fighting with your destiny. You are programmed to become like Christ. And either you get that now or you're in for a big, frustrating Christian life. Because the whole thing is wired for to become a more moral person, a more patient, loving, a more submitted person, a person with self-control, with the mouth, that everything Jesus was, you're becoming. And in fact, let me say this in boldness. If moral transformation is not happening to you, my friend, from the inside out, then you don't have Christ. Because that necessitates. Jesus himself said, listen, uh, in 1 John 1.6, John writing, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So nobody could say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then walk in continual darkness. He says, you're lying. But, 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 let's just take the word for what it says. It says, if you say, I'm a Christian, I know the Lord, and I hate my, I hate, 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 hate. He says, liar. (laughs) Now, he didn't say it quite like that. He says that. Listen to this. 1 John 3, 9. And I already know there are people in here going, but, but, but. You know what? Let the word of God speak to you. And don't try to bend and twist it around to fit your sorry excuse for living as a Christian. Can I get an amen? (laughs) All right. Maybe we won't need to go to two services. <laughs> All right, listen to this. I'm just reading the Bible to you folks. First John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. 
No, 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 but, 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 but. He just says, if you've been born of God, God put this holy seed of life in you, and it will spring up, and it will not want to do evil and wrong. It will want to conform to God's will and God's ways. And if that's not happening to some degree or another, you don't have the real thing. That's what the Bible says. It's a spiritual impossibility for you to continue as a prostitute and say, I know the Lord. Praise the Lord. A prostitute who comes to faith will find a new job. (laughs) A promiscuous man who's a womanizer will stop. He says it's a spiritual impossibility for a womanizer or a sexually immoral person or a thief to continue. Oh, well, I'm just struggling. (laughs) We all just struggle. But mind you, my dear friend, You better just be struggling. There are two choices to you who are laden with sin that keeps going. Either you are a defeated Christian who will end up in heaven, and I hope that be the case, or you have deceived yourself into thinking you're saved, but you're not. The evidence for a saved life is holiness. It always has been. It always will be. There better be some in your life or you're not going to be there. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did, 1 John 2, 6. Whoops, there goes all my time with two points left. Let's just summarize. Point two was, first one was imitate dad. And now, point two, respect him. Here's the paraphrase. 17 to 21 is actually one long Greek sentence. Here's my paraphrase. And you do realize that our Father in heaven isn't going to play favorites or give you special treatment when it comes to holiness. That's why you have to conduct yourself with reverent fear here in a world that you don't belong. The Lord didn't buy you back with money. He didn't use silver and gold to save your soul, but it cost him Jesus' blood. Let this send some spiritual shivers down your spine as you put your faith and hope in him. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, oh, did I just, uh, I just encouraged you with these crazy truths about God's love, who you are in Christ, eternity and inheritance, uh, incorruptible, you're going to live forever, God's your father, and, and, and well, is that going to cause you to become desensitized to how serious this is? Sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, I'm covered by grace. God's my father. We, as fathers and mothers, let our kids get away with all kinds of stuff for all kinds of reasons. I mean, we really do. Sometimes we think it's kind of cute, And sometimes we're just weak. And sometimes it just pushes a button because of our own problems. And so we let it go. But he says, hey, you've got to live in this kind of reverent fear. Because God is your father and all your sins are covered. But you will stand before him as judge. Let that give you a little shiver. When you think you're out there living under God's wonderful grace, and we are, and we do, 
and all our sins are covered. But our stewardship issues will be brought out before him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him or her in the thing, with the things done while in the body, good or bad. Listen, I'm going to repeat that for you. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Christians, that each one of us may receive what is due him or her while we were in the body, good or bad. Judgment day for us. The good is reward, the bad is we lose reward. Here's a paraphrase of my favorite uh, scripture about losing reward or gaining reward at judgment time. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 in a paraphrase. Take particular care in how you build your Christian life, picking out your building materials. Eventually, there's going to be an inspection. If you use cheap or inferior materials, you will be found out. The inspection will be thorough and vigorous. You won't get away with a thing. If your work passes his inspection, fine, there will be reward. If it doesn't, there's no special commendation for that kind of life. You will lose reward for bad stewardship. You'll be okay. Personally, safe but just by the skin of your teeth. There will be many on that day because they didn't fear. They just said, I'm saved by grace. I don't gotta. Do you gotta do this to be saved? Do you gotta do this to be saved? No, you probably don't gotta do anything to be saved. But, you know, if you want reward on that last day, you need to be faithful with what God's called you to and what he's given you. It's just a bad way of thinking. I told you about one of my, my, my most precious moments in my entire life. Um, it started back in high school when I went to baccalaureate for graduation, and I was sitting there and not getting any rewards or, or commendations at all. But I went in to high school with straight A's. And then all hell broke loose in our family, and I just unraveled. And I had a terrible time in high school. Academically, I knew I could do it, but I just couldn't hold it together through what we were living through. And I remember looking at the kid who was being commended over and over again. And I remembered in eighth grade, we both were awarded the same prize because he had straight A's in everything, and so did I. And in baccalaureate at high school, he was getting everything. Scholarships and commendation. And I remember sitting there, "Ah, I could have done that. Well, I ended up getting saved at 19. And then I went to Bible college. And in my first year of Bible college, I walked by the chapel during first year baccalaureate, not for us, for whoever was graduating. And my mind went back to that day. And I started thinking, that will never happen happen again. And for four years, with God's help, I strive. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, one day, there's going to be baccalaureate night, and they're going to recognize a few people. My family's going to be there. I, I want 
that. I want to feel good about what God has done in me. And I want to give back to him. He takes this kid out of a disco and puts him where? In the ministry in Bible college. And so I started to, to be faithful. I was the leader of a street ministry team. I, I went to the Philippines as a summer intern. I was a class speaker for the seniors. And then on that night, the president of the college, as I walked by, pulled on me a little bit and put his arm around me and started to talk about my life there at the Bible College. In a big auditorium, my dad stood to his feet and I met his eyes. As the college president went on, there was a moment. That day is coming. Only not just a few people gathered in some funny-looking auditorium. It's going to be heaven. God the Father. He's going to pull you aside and say, either he's going to say, can I just have your attention here? I want to tell you about this gal. You have any idea what she went through? Nobody even knows. Let me tell you right now. This, this, and this, and this. And look at what, how she responded. And he turns and he applauds. He affirms God Almighty in front of the angels, in front of the hosts of heaven. This is coming. And Peter says, could you please live out your days with that in mind? So when you get there, he doesn't say, oh, glad you're here. Welcome. Next. (laughs) And it's not going to be quite like that. But let me assure you, my good friend, that those who squander the good graces of Jesus Christ and trample over his blood and count it as a casual, unholy thing, you may indeed be saved but you won't have a lot to show for it where it really matters. Gird up your mind. Use self-control. The last thing he says here is the the other thing that you should be thinking about is the price paid for your admission into heaven. Here's the problem. When you don't charge something for a conference or a seminar, people don't really come, and nor do they really care. But when you charge 15, 20, 25, 30, whatever, you charge 50 bucks, people are on time, they pick up their notebooks, they take notes, they care. Why? They invested something. The downside of free salvation is the stupidity to think that because it didn't cost me anything that I'm going to take this very casually. Here's the paraphrase. The price of your admission Paid on your behalf wasn't in dollars and cents, but in a person's blood. Now, the little watch you get in a Happy Meal, (laughs) you know, you sling it around the car, who cares? But Grandpa's little watch, that heirloom, it's valuable. You, You show respect and care because it's worth something. Yeah, I know, I know. It's free, free, free. I know, I get it. Jesus said, whoever wants to come to the living water, come drink freely, without cost, free, 
free, free. The banner over eternal life says free, free, free. But somebody paid a dear price. And Peter's saying, think of that when you think about being careless and sloppy and neglectful and sinful. Let the investment that God has put in you bring a fear, a sense of awe in how you live. Last point. Then he says, love his kids. Here's the paraphrase. A couple thoughts and we're done. Now that your sinful life is out of commission, thanks to your obedience to the truth, this will bring a sincere and deep love for your brothers and sisters who share the same father. You must love one another deeply from the heart. We're in this together. It's forever. Just like Isaiah wrote, everything here is going to fade away and die, but God's word is eternal. So here's what he's saying. Salvation is never just about you. He says, to be chosen by God, to be set apart by the Holy Spirit for relationship with Jesus means necessarily coming into relationship with others who are also chosen. You see, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples, you teach us. And he says, start with this, our Father. Because the way God designed it is we need each other. We have this shared experience. I remember coming out of that bar in 1979, bowing my head on the sidewalk with my brother, saying some sinner's prayer. We had never been to church a day in our lives. I didn't even know what I was saying. Getting home, talking to my dad. He didn't have a church yet. I was one of the only Christians we knew. Confused and dazed. It was just, just all this joy in my heart, too. And then I found this church. And I walk in the door. I'm like, I get it. I love these people. And these people love me. We have this shared experience. Everything made sense. I was telling them, hey, I was in this barn. I got this vision. I felt guilty. And I turned to the Lord. And I just said, Lord, forgive me. And they're all going like this. They get me. We're family, brothers and sisters. It was wonderful. I I felt the love. I felt the being part of a family. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, nothing survives this life. Nothing. All of creation will melt away to nothing. The trees, the mountains, the islands, gone. The earth, the heavens, the stars, rolled up like a scroll, gone. The animals, everything, Nothing from this life goes into the next but you and me. That's it. And he says, now you're not going to love one another? You need each other. Love one another deeply. You are co-heirs. You are chosen together. He knits you together. You can't do this by yourself. So that's why he says there in chapter 2, get rid of, are you going to tell me that you're going to come into a place like this where we all share this same experience and be mean to one another, <coughs> excuse me, and be judgmental? He says, tell me, no way. You're going to envy and fight and bicker and quarrel? You guys are heirs together. You're fighting for your lives out there. What, what together? Sorry, Cheers. It's hot up here under the lights. 
and I have no protection. <laughs> Raise your hand if you were once an unbeliever and now you're a believer. <clears throat> you can hold them up. Raise your hand if God has delivered you from something. Raise your hand if uh, someone thinks you're a little strange because you're a believer. <laughs> Raise your hand if you have to wrestle against your own sinful thoughts. Raise your hand if you've been insulted, mocked, or given a hard time for your faith. Raise your hand if you've experienced life-changing love of God and his peace. Keep it up. Raise your hand if God has healed your heart, renewed your mind, provided for your needs. One more. Raise your hand if you've been divided from a loved one because of your faith. Now look around. If you raised your hand once, just raise it right now. Now look around. It's us. It is us. And he says, are you telling me you're going to talk smack about each other? And you're going to be petty with each other? You are all you have. It's you against the devil and against the world and against your own wicked hearts. Hold each other's hands. Carry each other's burdens. Let love cover a multitude of sins. Your family. Love each other deeply. We need one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our shared experience that makes us brothers and sisters in the Lord. And help us, Father God, to do what Peter's calling us to do. Father God, to, to be able to prepare our minds for action, to be, get mentally psyched up, to get a grip on our lives, and to keep our eyes on the prize, and to be holy like you're holy, and to love one another deeply. This is the recipe for success, come what may, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Thank you for these words. Help us to live them out. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. Paul the Apostle said, hey, you guys know how races work, right? He says, everybody who runs a race, everybody runs in the race. But he says, one person will get the prize. He said, run your Christian race like someone trying to get first prize. He said, that's the reason I fight my own body. I beat my own body into submission. That after having preached to others, that I myself might be disqualified for reward. Run the race to win. First prize, not second. First prize, the Bible says. Nothing wrong with that. That's what motivated Paul at the end of his life. What does he say? I fought the fight. I've kept the faith. Now, awaiting for me is this crown of righteousness that the Lord, the judge, will give to me and not me only but to all who love his appearing. Father, thank you for your word and the Holy Spirit who motivates us to run the race to win. May you help us now, Father God, by your spirit. Now as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if somebody here wants to become a Christian and can 
confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, all that means is we'll say a prayer together. We'll help you. You want to lift up your hand in either the overflow room or here to say, I wish to dedicate my life to Christ. I never have before. Today I'd like to become a Christian. You just slip your hand up nice and high. We'll pray the sinner's prayer together. Give you a Bible. Get you started on your way. always like to give that opportunity. Now, Father, for those of us who know you, we pray that this word would go deep into our hearts and make a difference how we live this afternoon and every day. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. If you do need prayer, we always have prayer partners over there by the cross. We'll see you uh, Wednesday, Wednesday night. <laughs>